Welcome to Corrod Core from Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Wadsworth, Ohio, with Father Patrick Schultz and Chris Serger, where we share heart to heart on topics of faith, culture, and life in the church. So we're recording this um, Saturday of the first week of Lent, and uh, so we're what four days into Lent mm-hmm. as we're recording this. How's your Lent been? So far, uh, very penitent. Really. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, that's what you're supposed to say. That's right. right that's right. That's the holy way. Yeah. yeah. How's the hair shirts coming? Since you're getting used to it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's some site where you can buy hair shirts. Oh, yeah. Never looked into that. For sh- we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> this, this episode brought to you by, oh, man. Holyhairshirts.com. Oh, probably. Yeah. Trademark. So, um, so we're 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 back with another episode of uh, Corrod Core. I'm Father Patrick Schultz, parochial vicar here at Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Wadsworth, and I'm joined by my good buddy, Chris Serger, layman from Sacred Heart of Jesus Lay Parish. Layman. <laughs> my kids heard you say that on the other podcast, and they're like, "What's a layman?" I said, "Just us, reg- regular people." <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like layman. <laughs> This is Chris Serger, the lame man. No, you, you are not a lame man. You're a great man. Thank you, Father. I try. You're, you're, you're welcome. So um, we're diving back into Death on a Friday Afternoon by Father Richard John Newhouse. And um, if you bought the book, if you're reading it with us, uh, you were probably just as shook as I was reading this second chapter, um, the second word of Christ. And it is just... Uh, Whew, it was good. How about for people who maybe are just tuning in for like the first episode, just give us again a real quick framework, what we're doing, why we're doing it, why it's important. Yeah, we're going through this book uh, that covers the seven last words, the seven last phrases of Christ from the cross, collected across the Gospels. And uh, the second one is, this is one of the biggies. I mean, they're all big. Anything the Lord says is big, but yeah, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, which is really what it is. It's all about. Like, Heck yeah. Everything we're doing, we're just hoping to get back to paradise. Mm-hmm. And if not, you know why are you listening to this podcast? <laughs> if that's not what your main concern in life is. Yeah, go listen to somebody else, I guess. Right. <laughs> no, actually, no. Don't listen. Just stay, stay tuned. Stay with us. Yeah. So the I'm just going to kick us off the very first line. So you, you mentioned this to me earlier that like his the way he begins and the way he ends are just so powerful. And you're right. Like the very first line of this chapter, I was reading this again on vacation with my vacation drink. And I, I like I, I, I read this line. I'm just going to read it. The first one home is a thief, period. Jesus is not very fastidious about the company he keeps. Oh, man. Like I... That very first line, the first one home as a thief, um, I like closed my book, put it down. It was just like, like, thank you, Lord. Thank you that the first one home is a thief. Because like, I think for any, if the whole overarching theme for me in this chapter is like, I was filled with hope. Um, and yeah, the hope that like is born in that truth. Um, so powerful. So, so very powerful. Yeah. And it's, uh, what, what's interesting is, like, so it's just this perfect parallel. Nothing's ever, of course, done by mistake. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's a thief, right? He steals a reward he does not deserve. Aren't we all thieves then? But yeah. If, if we get there, we're all thieves. Mm. We can't earn our way. Mm. And that's obviously one of the big mistakes. Like, can we earn our way to heaven? Answer, no. No. 
No, we can't. I just was thinking about this that like that you know the the parable that Jesus tells, and I think he brings it up in this chapter of the the uh, the workers who come to the vineyard who come in the morning and they they agree for the daily wage, and the ones who come in the afternoon daily wage, and then you know it's like the eleventh hour. The 59th minute, the 59th second, that worker comes in and he still gets the same daily wage. You know, you wonder like, I don't know, it's hard to, you can't know the psychology of the, you know, the the Christ. But when he was preaching that parable, like did he, did he have in his mind's eye, did he have Dismas in mind? You know, like was he already thinking about the man who's going to save at the 59th, like the 11th hour, the 59th minute, the 59th second, right. you know? Like, there's going to be a guy, like, the reason I'm going to die on this day at that time is so that I can save Dismas. Right. Ugh. And who's Dismas? Me. <laughs> and also... The guy... Who, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. <laughs> I, That was not... I, I, read, I read too much into it. Dismas, for those of you who don't know, is the traditional name of the, the quote-unquote good thief, the one who turns to the Lord on the cross and says, to the, like, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, Jesus, remember me, right? That's Dismas' song. That's the song of Dismas. Yeah, the good thief. Right. Yeah, so the first one home is a thief, and thanks be to God it's a thief. So that just gives me hope. Yeah, I, I just, and you're right, that, that whole idea of the last minute of the, the last hour, you know, like we say at the end of World War One, he says, uh, Newhouse says, at times we turn to him with little faith. You know, like Dismas probably didn't have a ton of faith, when he's, he probably had none when he's hanging there, but obviously something struck him. At times we turn with a little faith, sometimes with a mix of faith and doubt, when we are more sure of the doubt than the faith. Jesus is not fastidious about the quality of faith. He takes what he can get, so yeah. to speak, and gives immeasurably, immeasurably more than he receives. He takes our faith more seriously than we do and makes of it more than we ever could. His response to our faith is greater than our faith. Mm. So that little sentence, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. The man couldn't have really understood even what he was saying. Yeah. I mean, the Lord, the Lord just, he doesn't need, I think sometimes we think about our faith or like our, our openness to the Lord. And I think we think that it needs to be this gigantic thing that in order to receive the gigantic gift, my openness, my faith has to be equally gigantic, you know, um, like, like as if, you know, for the Lord to back in the 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 dump truck full of grace i need to have this big open you know barn door he's like no i just need tiny tiny little cracks Mm -hmm. just i mean just the tiniest of crack i can work with the tiniest openness i can work with that's why i love i think i quoted last time or or referenced it last time from pope francis's book from the year of mercy the name of god is mercy um that uh you know Within the context of confession, there's sometimes people who just don't, like, I'm just not, I'm not ready to forgive, okay? Do you want to forgive? I don't even know if I want to forgive. Well, do you want to want to forgive? Yeah. Okay. We'll work with it. That's perfect. Like, that's like the teeniest of cracks, you know? Like, that's the, that's the dismiss on the cross. Jesus, remember. And speaking of that, I love that Newhouse points out that that, like, dismiss is the first and only one in the gospel that addresses Jesus as Jesus yeah, without any other additives. It's not Jesus, son of David. It's not Jesus, whatever, Lord have, you know, it's, it's, it's just so simple. Jesus, you know, I, I, this is the line. He says, the, 
the first person to be so familiar with the Lord is a convicted criminal who is the last person to speak to Jesus before he dies. Dying together is a great social leveler. Ugh, so powerful. I love that he also says that um, that the that the goat becomes a sheep, right? That's right. the image of like the separation of the sheep and the goats. That here, Dismas, uh, I mean, a convicted criminal being put to death, a goat, so to speak, um, in the last second becomes a sheep. That's the like we're not condemned to be goats. We're not destined to be sheep. We are goats who become sheep who can become sheep and sheep who can become goats. Right. Yeah, he starts at the bottom. He says that later on. Did the whole idea he's a thief? So, I, I, maybe everybody doesn't realize this, but like crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. Like, Dismas didn't steal a pack of gum. Right. Whatever he did to deserve this, like crucifixion was a statement that the state was making about the utter humiliation that this person deserved. You don't deserve to live. So that's who Jesus brings home first. He doesn't bring home like the nice rabbi who you know maybe took an extra coin out of the temple tax. No, he brings home somebody that the state said, we're going to crucify him, yeah. which is the worst of the worst. Yeah. So if Dismas can get home, that uh, should give us all hope at some yeah. point. So good. Yeah. So, so good. This, yeah. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, so, you know, this starts to lead into that whole idea of like, okay, so... Um, who who else goes home, right? Yeah. Who else? If Dismas can go home, who else starts to go? Because to his other side, you have Justice, who's the I get. We don't call him the bad thief, right? Yeah. No, I, <laughs> just the other guy. He's just <laughs> the other guy, right? Um, and Newhouse, this is where he starts to open up that idea of okay, if Dismas can get home and Justice doesn't, what does it say about? Who else goes? Is it us? Right? And who should we hope gets there? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the... Uh, um, so this this whole idea, this whole chapter is, is I mean, touches into the whole question of... Um, yeah, like you just were saying, like, of who is getting into paradise. Of who's getting into paradise. Um and I don't know, like, I mean, if you're listening to this, chances are you, you're kind of been plugged into the sort of Catholic, I don't know, intellectual conversation maybe over the last few years. But there's been, th this question has resurfaced in many, many ways um, among some prominent theologians. Um, like, is everyone getting saved? Is is hell really crowded? Is hell really empty? Um and it just makes me think of like all the time I spend in the school talking to the kids. I mean, their questions are they? I mean, it's of course they have questions about heaven, hell, and purgatory. Like it's it's like it's these deep human questions. Who is getting saved? How do you get saved? Like is like how many people? Like what's the what's the requirement to get into heaven? Like how bad do you have to be to to get into hell? Like. How could a good God condemn people to hell? Does God condemn people to hell? Like, these are all huge questions that have been, I mean, they're in people's hearts. They've been there forever. And, um, I mean, he does address this in this chapter. Um, and I think a very beautiful way. Yeah. Well, he talks about in 1 Timothy, God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Is it possible that God's purpose will be thwarted? That's and a great question. That is the, the great question. Yeah. And then he, he goes on, God's plan is not to rescue a religious elite from an otherwise botched creation, but to restore all things in Christ. That was a really powerful line for me because I think, I mean, one of the things that, that's really gripped me in the last couple of years has been the sort of preaching of the kerygma that uh, has been articulated, I think, really, really well by my, by my good friend, Father John Ricardo, a uh, priest from the Archdiocese of Detroit. Um, in fact, he's got a book that he that you read recently, yeah, right? Rescued. Rescued, yeah. Um, that, like, the whole, like, Christ comes, why does Christ storm the beaches of creation? Why does the second person of, of the Trinity enter into creation but to rescue and to liberate um, the creature that God loves the most that's been held captive by the enemy? Um, so, I, in my mind, I, I think I've had a little bit more of a, um, yeah, that rescue mission mm-hmm. in the sense of like, here comes Christ on the helicopter, like dropping down to the sinking ship and he's like grabbing like humanity out to rescue us and hoisting us up to the father. Um, but like he wants to, he wants to renew the sinking ship. He wants to calm this, like he wants to change everything. Right. Um, which is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a shift. And, and he mentions it towards the end of the chapter and we'll, we'll get there, I'm sure. But like, that this sort of shift to the individual that we ha- we've had in the last, I mean, intellectually since the Enlightenment, you know, with Rene Descartes and and thinkers from him onward, but certainly in the last, within Christian circles, within the last 150 years, this sort of, um, it's about me and my salvation, me right. and Christ, me and the Lord, it, that exclusivity of that relationship that's almost, um, not denying, but just ignoring the, the communal and the cosmic um, implications of redemption. Like Christ is not just simply interested in redeeming or saving me, but every blade of grass, every fallen leaf, every, like everything in the cosmos is going to be redeemed. Right. Which is a totally different way of thinking about it. Well, and when you add on to that, so something that's really started to strike me over the last couple of years, and I think I got this from Peter Kreeft, um, this whole idea and, uh, Cardinal Dulles writes about this too, is, you know, the church is the mystical communion, the mystical body of Christ, which, again, it's these, these things that we hear. And I remember Peter Kreeft, he put it, he's like, no, like the mystical body, like literally we are Christ's body. And he's the head of the church, not like in the sense that he's the uh, the lead of some governmental organization. Like he's the head, and he says like, like that hairy thing on your, above your shoulders, <laughs> right? So, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that, that, like that thing on your neck. Right. <laughs> so if we're the, if we're the mystical body, Jesus came here to uh, redeem his mystical body. Like, we're all part of that as baptized Christians. He doesn't want any of it to go. Like, he's not going to be like, oh, I don't need that finger over there. Oh, right? yeah, that's right. It's so good. I, I don't need these toes. He's like, no, I, I need all of it. Like, it's all part of my body that I'm here to redeem. Mm. So, it's like, can, is Jesus really not going to succeed in that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the answer has to be yes, right? I mean, he has he has to say that, uh, well, not that he's not going to succeed, but the possibility of him not succeeding, I think we have to open up because if we have free will, we can choose hell, yeah. right? That, that's the whole idea. We teach that nobody is sent to hell. They right. choose hell. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a tough one to wrap your head around. And it's also a, 
I think once you see it, it's a game changer when you understand that like um, God in his perfect justice and his love for us gives us for eternity what we desire for eternity. Mm -hmm. Um, And if it's not him, he gives us perfectly for eternity that which is not him. Um, who I, I think it was, it was probably C.S. Lewis, but right. the um, that the door to hell is one locked from the inside, mm. and they rage, they rage on the inside. Yeah, that, that's great. On that same point, Newhouse says the point is that in this life and in the world to come, those who follow Jesus will receive everything they want. If what they want is to follow Jesus, right? Mm. That's the choice. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I felt like as I was reading that, I was like, wait, what? Hey, hang on. I got to go back. I got to read that again. Yeah. I, yeah. Read that one more time. Nice and slow. Because that is like, wait, whoa, okay. Okay. Yeah. It is. The point is that in this life and in the world to come, those who follow Jesus will receive everything they want. If what they want is to follow Jesus, you know, there's a, there's this old Twilight Zone. Not that I've watched a ton of Twilight Zone, but it's sort of a famous one, mm-hmm. right? And the, uh, um, it's this guy who, like he just wants to be left her alone and like read his books, right? Yeah. And he he wears glasses, and so he wakes up one morning or something, and everything's been destroyed, and like he got his wish, everything's gone, and it's just him by himself in silence, and he's finally going to be able to to read like forever, and then. He breaks his glasses. <gasps> right? <laughs> like, that's all he wanted. He thought the thing that he wanted most was just the solitude to be by himself. And then he gets what he wants. Right? Mm. Duh. <sighs> Brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that what you were just saying. I mean, the whole, uh, like, the whole desire piece in this, I think, is really huge, too. And he, he touches on this, uh, pay, on, like, bottom of page 39. It just really... Uh, pierced me. It was so beautiful. I want to read this. Um, for paradise we long. He turns into Yoda there. For for paradise we long. That's not Yoda. We long for paradise. For paradise we long. For perfection we were made. We don't know what it would look like or feel like, but we must settle for nothing less. This longing is the source of the hunger and dissatisfaction that marks our lives. It drives our ambition. What we long for is touched in our exaltations. In our devastations, it is known by its absence. This longing makes our loves and friendships possible and so very unsatisfactory. The hunger for nothing less than paradise, nothing less than perfect communion with the absolute, with the good, the true, the beautiful. Communion with the perfectly one in whom all the fragments of our scattered existence come together at last and forever. We must not stifle this longing. It is a holy dissatisfaction. Such dissatisfaction is not a sickness to be healed, but the seed of a promise to be fulfilled. I mean, uh, <laughs> the so the the Greeks called this longing eros. This this longing, this desire for the this the infinite fulfillment of our longing, our desire. This. This stretching, this straining towards this known unknown, right? Um, this mystery that that we taste, we get little glimpses of it in this life, but it's um, it's not 
in this life, right? We get little hints, we get little memories of it that point us towards that perfect status. And so like hell for people becomes latching on to the little taste, the little glimpses, like this is going to be my paradise. And it never is. It never, ever is. I love this. He says, we survey the melancholy shards of what was meant to be the pieces strewn across the Valley of Tears, this valley east of Eden, that like this is this Valley of Tears as we pray in the Salve Regina, it is just filled with the shards, the shattered shards of the beauty that we were originally created for and the beauty that we intuitively know that we are meant to experience forever. Uh. And that, that ties to like what we were talking about in the last episode, right? We know something has gone wrong. It yeah. is just so... You could grow up in isolation and you would... These longings are just... They're baked into us. Yeah. Which is why, again, every culture has some form of its theology. I don't think we've ever discovered some tribe that had no God. Mm. Maybe we have. I don't think so. They all have some yeah. idea of the eternal, that there's something beyond here that we are supposed to be longing for. Yeah, like we, our, our modern, postmodern culture, civilization, I guess, is, is really unique in all of human history, that we are the first to just look at the world around us and say, no, it... It just is. It wasn't made by anything. It, it, like it's the first like atheistic. We're, like we are an anomaly in human civilization. A total anomaly. Well, we think we know so much, right? Yeah. And then we discover so much that we we don't know. I, you think of the scientists and like they could have never conceived the atom, and then they discover the atom, and they're like, oh, this is it. Yeah. And then they're like nanoprotons. <laughs> wait, wait. They're smaller. They're, smaller they, bits? they get smaller. They're quarks. There's dark. What? This just I think when we discover these things, we, we constantly think, oh, we're, now we're on the cusp of figuring it out. Yeah. And all we do is find out there's so much more that we don't know. Because oh, yeah. There's got to be something. So, so that brings us back to, you know, th this whole idea that's it's often termed universalism. Mm -hmm. right? So who should be saved or who will be saved in there? Uh, he, he writes, there can be no doubt that we should desire that all be saved. For as we have seen, that is what God desires. And it is axiomatic that we should desire what God desires. So that this always comes, you hear these things, and we Hitler's always an easy one to go to. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, Hitler. Should we, like as Christians, are we really called to hope that Hitler is in heaven? Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. That's a hard yes. Yeah? Yeah. Hard yes. Yeah. Because I think, like... When people, I mean, thoughtlessly, when we don't really think or consider, like, what heaven is or what hell is, I mean, I think it's easy to say, no, he should be in hell. Yeah. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, not denying that the Holocaust was bad. Just so as, so as clear, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You never want to be caught defending him, but, like... No. Not denying the horror of the Holocaust, not denying the horror, horror of the gulag, the horror of the killing fields, the horror, I mean, the bloodiest century, the 20th century, not denying any of that. And yet, like, hell is worse. Right. And, like, as, as, as a Christian, 
Um, like, as you just said, if God's desire is that all be saved, who am I to say, like, you're wrong about this one. Mm-hmm. You're wrong about that one. You're wrong about this one. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't exculpate or say that what was done, you know, the most horrific of offenders, of the most brutal atrocities of human history, you know, what, like, yeah, like, if you're, if you're listening right now and being like, oh, I don't, I, I don't know about this, you know, like, this is, this is wrestling with the very heart of, like, what it is that Jesus was, attri- was trying to accomplish, what he did accomplish on the cross, was it for just a religious elite, for a select few? Or was it for, uh, like, was it a gift that he wanted to be made available to anybody who would seize it? Right. In in what you just said there, you, like in your first words, you said, uh, should Hitler be in hell? The answer is yes, but you know what? So should you, and so should I. Yeah. Like, again, none of us deserve heaven at all. Yeah. Because we can't earn it. So maybe he should have gone there faster. <laughs> like, who, who's to say? Yeah. But none of us deserve anything other than that. We talked last time about how sin is a rupture in the relationship of, you know, perfect communion, which is what the Trinity is. So really and truly, there's only one person who, quote unquote, deserves heaven, and that would be Jesus' mother. Yeah. <laughs> other than that, none of us do. And yeah. so... Is it, uh, you know, it's a weird thing. I remember when I, I've read this for a lot, a number of years, and you're right, like kids ask about this stuff. Yeah. And I've always said this kids, like, and we talk about history a lot in our house because I'm a nerd and I like history. But I'm like, yeah, we should pray that Hitler's in heaven. And, that I, you know, I think, not to get, like, super dark here, but uh, there's been, obviously, with the increase in suicide yeah. in our country over the last couple of decades, and especially over this last year with all the COVID oh, madness, yeah. um, you know, there, this is a major problem for a lot of families, this idea, you know, that there's sort of this old thinking that suicide is the unforgivable sin mm. because it's the your last action. You can't ask forgiveness. Yeah. We can't say that, we can't say that. Church doesn't teach that for one. Right. But we can't say that either. We, we've talked about this, like, the that, that time that elapses and however you do it you know if you shoot yourself that time from that bullet leaving the gun and going through your skull in god's time is an eternity yeah right? yeah and we don't know what happens in that meeting in that that eternal moment yeah and so are all saved like is there hope for these people absolutely yeah yeah the um yeah for the god who's outside of space and time i mean watching so to speak someone take their life he he's not it's not as though he's thwarted by how fast it happens like if only i had more time to intervene like the god who's outside of space and time can do an infinite number of things in the time it takes a bullet to leave a gun to enter through a, a head or so to speak right but um and like just sharing this with great reverence because it's meant to be like like that's why we still like, I, I mean, my classmates and I, within the first three months of us being ordained priests, all of us had done funerals for suicides. Some for overdoses, some for just, you know, what we usually think about suicide. But, um, like, we did, a, we offered a funeral mass for them because we believe that 
our prayers affect things outside of space and time. There's a great story of Padre Pio. I think I was telling you this, that he was having a conversation with somebody and paused in the midst of the conversation, got very quiet, said a prayer, and returned the conversation. The person was saying, what, what were you just doing? He said, oh, I just, I just remember that I needed to pray for my great-grandfather or something who had taken his life. It, it was something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, but he's dead. <laughs> he's like, do you not think that God who's outside of time can take my prayer now mm-hmm. and apply it to that moment then? And it's just like, whoa, yeah. I mean, um, there's a great book on this. If you want more to dive into that specifically, it's called Hope After Suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I forget, it's written by a priest, but it, it's excellent. Absolutely excellent. Um, but yeah, this whole idea then of, of um, it goes back to Dismas. Like, if if Dismas, why not me? Why not, you know, like, he, I love how he says, um, but the first was Dismas, the thief. Jesus began at the bottom of the human heap. We should not be surprised by this, for he had no. He had said so often that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is, I mean, in the history of the church, he, he goes through this, that there's been a, a lot of thinkers who have, who have, you know, a lot of the church fathers, whether it's, you know, Origen or Clement of Alexandria or Gregory of Nyssa, there's been some prominent theological minds that have, have tended towards this view of universalism, or, or the Greek term is apocatastasis, that in, at the end of time, all things will be, um, that, it, that in the end, all will be saved. Um, and he goes through this chapter saying there's also a lot of great minds who have said, no, no, I don't know about that. And I think he does a really good job of threading the needle of just like, walking through and just kind of laying out the case of of why why it's legitimate for us to have to have hope where he gets to this distinction that Thomas Aquinas makes between uh hope and desire right. and I think this is really important that the, the the difference for Thomas Aquinas between hope and desire is that in order to have hope in something you have to believe that it can be attained right like, can we hope that God can save all? Going to what we were just saying, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if that possibility exists, shouldn't that be our hope, right? Like, yeah. I'm not going to be the one who goes, I, I hope what God wants doesn't come to pass. <laughs> right. That, that, would not, uh, that would not comport with our being Christians. Yeah, it would be a very bizarre, a very bizarre kind of stance to take. Right. So it goes to, uh, it starts to, and I, I, I remember being a kid thinking about this. I was like, well, what about all the Indians? You know, they had, they lived here for thousands of years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You know, yeah. To go back to our, they never heard of Jesus. Yeah. Like, are they all condemned to hell? And I remember being as a kid going, that doesn't seem to make sense to me that they would all be condemned to hell. Yeah. They're God's creation, too. Of course, I didn't think about it like I think about it now. Yeah. But it never made sense. And Newhouse touches on this. He goes, you know, there's no, there is no salvation apart from Christ. There cannot be if, as Christians believe, Jesus is the God-man who brought about our atonement with the Father. To suggest otherwise is to suggest that Jesus is not, as he said, the way, the truth, and the life. But is only a way, a truth, and a life. If, in the mercy and mystery of God, people can be saved who have never even heard of Christ, 
they are still saved only because of Christ. For, quote, there is salvation in no one else. Mm. Yeah, the, like that right there, that is a, you know, with the fact that like that was the question you were asking as a kid. That's the question I get all the time at the school. Um, you know, uh, like, and it's and it's a very complicated, nuanced question in the sense of like how much conscious knowledge of the Christian faith is required to be saved. Is is does conscious knowledge is it required to be saved? Right, and if it's not required, you know, um, then maybe we shouldn't be evangelizing, right? Yeah. You know, like if if you can be saved through your ignorance, because you're ignorant then maybe we shouldn't be sending out missionaries because then we don't want to tell them about the gospel to give them a chance to reject the gospel, yeah. right? But is that right? Because, no, we were mandated to evangelize, you yeah. know, go into the, all the world. Um, so, like, how, how does that work, right? How, unpack that a little bit more, Chris, that whole, like, that, all right, if, if, you, are, if you are saved, if, if in the mercy and the mystery of God people can be saved who have never heard of Christ, they are still saved only because of Christ, for there is no salvation in no one else. Like, let's just, I think that this is a very important point where we need to kind of like just sit for a second. Right. So he, he talks about St. Paul when he was in Athens, right? Yeah. This is the whole idea. And he, he's in Athens and he's, he's preaching. Uh, he comes across an altar dedicated to an unknown God. Um, and he, he did not, he says, he did not tell the Athenians there was no such God. He did not tell them uh, they were worshiping nothing. No, he said, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's saying, the God that you believe in that orders the universe and and, and uh, uh, makes uh, eternal life possible. He's like, that's Jesus. You didn't know. It. That's what I'm talking about. That's you were you had this uh, emanation of a penumbra to you. Some crazy wow. some yeah. Oh yeah, that's a little joke on the Supreme Court though, right? <laughs> but you had this instinct, and that instinct that you had. I'm telling you, this is the instinct. Jesus is the instinct. And same thing with all the, the Native Americans who lived here, right? That that instinct for the eternal, it was Christ because he is the truth. And that's what we say. And we we talk about Christians have been encountered by the truth, right? Mm. It's not my truth. It's not your truth. We're just saying, like, this is the truth. You were, ta- you know, you were talking about uh, before we came on the air as they were. Like, if I pick up a rock and, like, you've never heard of gravity and I drop the rock in front of you yeah. and I go... This thing falls. There's this thing called gravity. Like you don't have to assent that gravity exists for it to be true. It just is true. Yeah. You can call it something else. Yeah. But but it's not. Yeah. And that's what as Christians, to your old point, like we have encountered this truth. Like, woe is me if I don't tell people about it. Yeah. 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 The um what you, yeah, it makes me think of um Cardinal Newman. I mean, we're going to bring him up maybe every episode. But yeah. Cardinal Newman, who talked about uh, the conscience, he referred to the conscience uh, as the aboriginal vicar of Christ in the soul. Ooh, that's that's good. A, that's a, the aboriginal vicar of Christ in the soul. Yeah, that's my best Newman. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Newman. So, yeah, he, uh, so what is he getting at with that? That, like, okay, so if there is truth, that means there is a, there is a, there, that means there is a universal human nature. We are constructed in such a way that we are ordered towards certain goods and we are repulsed by certain evils that we are obliged by our consciences everywhere and always, no matter if you, you know, worship snakes and trees in Borneo or if you're born in Missouri, like every conscience is obliging every soul to 
seek the good, to pursue the good, to do the good, and to avoid evil. Um, and like that's universal across culture. I mean, C.S. Lewis, he says that there is no civilization in human history that has ever praised cowardice, that has ever like exalted you know, theft and murder, um, that there is a universal, um, I mean, this is the sort of natural law theory that we have, that we've really kind of lost in, in modern times, that there is something, there are goods that we are ordered towards and evils that we are, that are not perfective of our nature, that, as Newman says, insofar as we are obedient to the voice of conscience, we are obedient to the voice of Christ. And how Jesus saves those souls who never knew him, who never heard of Christianity, who never heard of the gospel, how he saves them, or what the interaction between like the Trinity and their mind or their heart would... I, that's, be, that's, that's not a thing we need to know. It's not a thing we can know. Um, but what we do know is that if they're saved, they're saved because of Jesus. They're saved because of what he did on the cross. They're saved because... Um, because he's the savior, right? That's like, if they're saved, they're saved by Christ. Um, so like this gets into the question of, all right, so then like, why should we send, like, why should we send out missionaries? You know, like, why should we evangelize? Okay, so like, if everyone is going to be saved, right? So like, in the sense of, if we're granting this sort of universal, like, if it's, if it's possible for, if we, if it's possible for us to hope that all be saved, What's the point of striving? What's the point of being a Christian? What's the point of inviting others to be a Christian? Like, what? That, like that's the question he asks. Yeah. How does he answer it? He answers the question that, because this is what we're called to do, yeah. right? Like, it, it's, you know, we are to be hard on ourselves, working out our own salvation in fear and trembling while being generous towards others, right? Our only hope for salvation is in the mercy of God. And therefore, as Jesus admonishes uh, again and again, we must be merciful to others. Like, it's not, it's truly like against mercy if we're not proclaiming the truth to others. Yeah. Right? Like, give them the choice. Let them have that that crack in the door of yeah. the faith that he, the Holy Spirit can then pour into. To, um, you know, that that's our job is to, we're not going to save every soul. Like, that's not our job. We don't save any souls. Jesus does. Mm -hmm. Right? But we should absolutely do what he told us to do. He commanded the apostles, go out to all the nations and make them my disciples. So we're not going to stop that because we've come up with some clever trick like, oh, well, maybe if we don't tell them, they'll go to heaven. Yeah, right. so, I mean, that's a yeah. pretty ridiculous way of thinking. But yeah. it's not to say that people don't think that way. Yeah. I love I love how he, he puts it here. And I think it's so apropos to, uh, gosh, our... our current situation as a church when we think about the new evangelization like what are we inviting people into and i think i don't know if i preached this here i can't remember but um that jesus is not like like broccoli that jesus is not this like additive to life that like you should have in your life um uh, he he is the very th the lens through which all life makes sense he is C.S. Lewis says he's he's like the sun, like not. In other words, he's like the sun in, in the sense of like by him I see everything, right? So like, why be a Christian? This is what he says. What's the point of being a Christian if in the end everyone is saved? 
People who ask that should listen to themselves. <laughs> What's the point of being first rather than last and serving the Lord whom you love? What's the point of being found rather than lost? What's the point of knowing the truth rather than living in ignorance? What's the point of being welcomed home by the waiting father rather than languishing by the pigsties? What's the point? The question answers itself. Like, what's the point of being a Christian that, that it's not just one additive? It's not like sprinkles on top of an, a regularly secular life, you know? It is that the encounter with the person of Christ generates a whole new way of being in the world, which is like commensurate to the kind of life that Jesus intended for all of humanity to have, right? The point of being a Christian is that it's like, it is awesome. Like it is the kind of life that comes about as a result of meeting this person transforms everything, right? Like it's like someone asking, what's the point of being a spouse? It's, it's meeting this person. It transforms the, your entire life. Um, it, there's not one element. It, it's not as though being a Christian just, okay, well, now I have a moral framework to know what, what's right and wrong. No. Or now I have a, a way of coping with hard times. Or now I have a way of, like, you know, understanding, you know, po- political issues. No. The point of being a Christian is is the kind of life that's generated from the encounter with the one who is love. And it transforms everything. It, it's what transformed the Roman Empire. It's, it's mm-hmm. like... It's the, it's the single greatest force for good in human history. The fact that there have been people who've met the person of Jesus and that in that encounter, they, they just become absolutely untouchable by the world and on fire. Um, that's how they flip the Roman Empire upside down. I don't know. What's the point of being a Christian? Yeah. Because it's awesome. Because it's awesome. Because we want to be with him in paradise. Right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. And, and we, we think uh, it's so easy. I think you've talked about this before. Uh, it's just about how our idea, our God is too small. Our heaven is too small. Yeah. We think of like what's paradise and it's so, uh, we have, I has not seen, ear has not heard what God has ready for this. Talk, tell that the story you tell about the uh, St. Faustina and all the martyrdoms. Oh yeah. So she, she St. Faustina, towards, uh, towards the end of her life, she died young. But she had this mystical experience where um, she she was given a taste of the glory that's awaiting us. Mind you, a taste. And she comes back from this experience saying more or less, I would be willing to suffer every martyrdom of every martyr from now until the end of time if I could ta- if I could experience another degree of the glory that I taste. Like <laughs> like you hear those things and you're like what could that? What could she have possibly experienced that would have gotten her to say, "Yeah, burn me at the stake, fillet my skin off, rip me to pieces, feed me to lions, uh, drown me underwater, shoot me with arrows, cut my head off, burn my eyes out, like eat my fingers off? Yeah, whatever. Like I'll take all of it if I can have another degree of glory of what I just experienced. What? What could that have been? They would have got like, like." I, I think about one martyrdom, and I'm like, ooh, I don't I, I just like, no, I've got such a low threshold for pain. I'd be such an uninspiring martyr. Like, oh, my gosh, it hurts. Um, but, yeah, like, the, the glory is, it's, any saint who's ever experienced it, they all just, they can't, 
all they do is stammer. They just can't even put it into words. Right. And so, and that go, you talked about Aquinas before. So Thomas Aquinas, his whole idea of love, like I, loving somebody, it's not romantic love. It's saying, I will what's good for the other, right? Yeah. So St. Faustina has this glimpse of heaven that she says something like that. And if we are truly called to love everybody, don't we, again, shouldn't we hope that all are saved? Because we want that experience that she had for everybody. Why would you not, Why is there anybody you would not wish that for? Even on your worst day with your worst enemy, would you really want to deny anybody that? And I, our answer has to be no. And God's answer is obviously, no, I don't want that. doesn't mean that it's not possible. Yeah. He'll still give us what we want in the yeah. end. But we should probably wrap this up as we're... Uh, you know, that brings us to that, that whole idea of uh... let's let, let, yeah. So let's let's wind this down with with what Newhouse says about this. So he's this is this is the great formulation. Um, if we love others, this is what you're just saying. If we love others, it seems that we must hope that in the end they will be saved. We must hope that all will one day hear the words of Christ today. You will be with me in paradise. Given the evidence of scripture and tradition, we cannot deny that hell exists. We can, however, hope that hell is empty. We cannot know that, but we can hope it is the case. Yeah. I mean, amen. Amen. Amen to that. Richard John Newhouse, you slay me once again. We are all... We are all dismiss, and mercifully at the end of our lives, we will stand before the Lord and he won't say, all right, so tell me why you should get in here. And hopefully we won't say, well, because I was a good person, because I tried really hard, because I went to church, because I paid my taxes, because, you know, I, I, I didn't start a Holocaust. I wasn't Hitler. I didn't round up, you know, 7 million of my countrymen and kill them. Um, I sent my kids to Catholic school. Like none of that, none of that counts. None of that suffices none of that i mean thanks be to god that he's given us those graces to not be hitler to you know to like live where we live to go to church to raise good holy families but like all we can do in the end is just like plead the promise of the shed blood of christ as he says like in the end all we can do is just cry out lord have mercy and um like you said you would save me so please save me right and there's hope I, he says, I will, I will not plead any work that I have done, although I will thank God that he has enabled me to do some good. I will not plead, I will plead no merits other than the merits of Christ, knowing that the merits of Mary and the saints are all from him, and, and for their company, their example, and their prayers throughout my earthly life, I will give everlasting thanks. But then he goes, he goes on, but in seeking entry to that heavenly kingdom, I will, with Dismas, look to Christ and to Christ alone. Then I hope to hear him say, Today you will be with me in paradise, as I hope with all my being, because although looking to him alone, I am not alone, he will say to all. Mm. Oh, so good. Well, friends, thanks for uh, sticking with us and joining us on this uh, this episode of Core Odd Core as we've kind of uh, um, just delved into... Just some huge questions. These were big questions today. Right. And I mean, I don't think we certainly answer them in any exhaustive way. And, and and he doesn't claim to answer them in exhaustive ways. But I think it's a really beautiful, compelling 
case he makes for that we uh, dare we hope. And um, yeah, we hope that this blesses you and those you love and just brings you into a deeper place of bringing your heart to the heart of the Lord. Core ad core, heart to heart. Uh, so until next time, God bless. Take care. Bye-bye.